The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, has launched the latest in a series of programs to help advance semiconductor technology in the United States. It's teaming up with the nonprofit Semiconductor Research Corporation and academia to work on seven specific chip technologies. The program is called Joint University Microelectronics Program 2.0. Here with more, Corporation Jump Program Manager, Dr. Adam Knapp. Dr. Knapp, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. This program is not part of the CHIPS Act. And in fact, it's a program for research that goes back many, many years, correct? That's correct. Jump 2.0 is a $331 million program with that money spread out over five years. This is the latest iteration in a series stretching back to 1997, in which DARPA has acted as a consortium member, along with, on average, about 15 semiconductor companies as well under the umbrella of the SRC to advance decadal goals for semiconductor research in the United States. And maybe just tell us briefly about the Semiconductor Research Corporation, not to be confused with the Semiconductor Industry Association. That's correct. So the Semiconductor Research Corporation was founded in 1983 by the Semiconductor Industry Association specifically to target the long-term research needs and ongoing research needs of the semiconductor industry. Specifically, we act as a governing consortium where we find projects of interest from the semiconductor industry or they are brought to us by various semiconductor industry members and we develop programs to target those specific research goals by bringing academia on board to actually execute those various goals. And in that guided execution in conjunction with the semiconductor companies, we develop both talent and new research to advance semiconductors. And what does DARPA bring to this? Basically, what the military and what the national security needs from the industry might be? Yeah. So what DARPA brings to this is a long-term time horizon. So they are most interested in the decadal needs in driving semiconductor research in directions of interest specifically to the DOD. It sounds like there needs Um, to be some sort of consensus, though, right? Because the industry knows what it's capable of doing. And the question is then, what is the next round of technology that we need? Is that kind of the way the consensus gets arrived at? How our programs are actually structured, specifically in the JUMP model, is we have seven research centers that span the full stack of both semiconductor applications and semiconductor technologies, ranging from cognition to communications, distributed computing, active sensing, and sensing in general, to logic and memory, heterogeneous integration or packaging, and then materials and devices. And so what DARPA gets out of this is via the interaction with our 15 member companies, which include both semiconductor companies and defense companies, they actually, with each of these research centers, which have about 20 researchers each, the sponsoring members actually have liaisons that come in to our program and actively guide research in specific areas throughout the duration of the program. So they're able to actually interact with our researchers and steer them towards things of industry relevance. So the defense industry is able to steer research in directions of relevance to them, and the semiconductor industry is able to steer research in in areas of direct relevance to them. And in doing so, they not only get all this research tailored to their needs, but they also get a labor force via the grad students and postdocs and undergraduates who are engaged with this research to be ready-made to actually advance these technologies in a five to 10-year time scale. 
All right. We're speaking with Dr. Adam Knapp. He is the Joint University Microelectronics Program, or JUMP, manager at the Semiconductor Research Corporation. And I guess then DARPA also brings money so that the government requirements also make it into the research plans for the different colleges and universities that own each one of these research areas that you mentioned. That is correct. They are a paying member, just like any of them private corporate members. And there's research going on at Cornell, Penn State, University of California at San Diego, and so forth. So they all have kind of ongoing programs in these different areas, as you mentioned, packaging or intelligent memory and storage and so on, that they have almost a continuous chain of research projects coming in their way. Yes. So how how each of these centers is actually structured is when they write the proposal, they typically have about 20 to 40 tasks per center that are then approved by our membership when we select their proposals competitively. This program is a five-year program. So once they have these centers set up, they perform research on these tasks under the guidance of our sponsoring members over the duration of five years with some course corrections and cuts along the way, particularly at the three-year mark when we reorient the program and we have them cut 20% of their sponsored research tasks. And then we take 50% of that cut and use it to reinforce really successful programs. And then we have the other 50% be allocated towards either new tasks or tasks that we think have enduring promise. And if one of the research programs comes up with a innovation, might even be patentable Mm -hmm. for packaging or for memory layout or communications and connectivity, any of those areas, what happens to that intellectual property and how is it then available to people that actually make semiconductors? Okay, so our sponsoring members can request or the researchers can request for their technologies to be patented. We actually hold the patent in that case, and it is given cost-free to our sponsoring members, including DARPA. So it flows through that way. Understood. And just out of curiosity, there is a couple of different pieces of the semiconductor industry in terms of the consumer of the chip. There was a time when many of the companies that also made computers made their own chips. It was vertically integrated. Over the years, that is parsed out to where you have the consumers and the pure manufacturers. Are there any companies? I think there's a couple of defense companies, though, that still operate fabs and still operate semiconductor manufacturing and packaging operations. Is that generally the case anymore? So on the commercial side, most companies actually outsource the fabrication of their chips. So most companies that design and sell chips are fabless, meaning they design the chips and then they work with a large contract manufacturer such as TSMC or Global Foundries to actually produce those chips. And then they are sold by the fabless company in question. So it's a really complicated ecosystem involving designers and manufacturers. But then you also have legacy type companies that do it all, such as Intel, which designs chips and fabricates chips, or Samsung, which designs chips and fabricates chips. Right. But it's pretty rare to find like an IBM that used to it's make very chips rare. Right, yeah. in these days. Yes. We have basically, within the Western ecosystem, consolidated down to about three players with modern capabilities. So the most modern fabs available are at TSMC, Samsung, and Intel. Which raises the question that this valuable intellectual property funded in part by taxpayers for benefit of U.S. national security actually, though, gets out into foreign countries. Now, most of those countries are still on our side, but 
Is that a leakage that we should be worried about? So if you're talking with regard to the Jump 2.0 program, most of the research that we actually sponsor is on the application side. So it's about how to better use these chips and interact with the ecosystem. So I wouldn't really characterize it in the way that you just framed it. So we're not getting national security implication type of things and having it built in Taiwan, for example. No. So, so I mean, we, we still have onshore fabs in the U.S. Not all chips need to use the latest nodes. And in many cases, it's actually better and cheaper to not do so. Right. And then on the other hand, you could say that because of the CHIPS Act, which again is not funding this program, it could be that we'll see more higher end fabs or just simply more nodes that are needed for whatever is needed in the United States by virtue of the investments coming from that legislation. That is correct. And just briefly, how much does DARPA put into this? And what is the dollar I'm, levels I'm we're sorry, talking about? All funding levels are proprietary to our members. Dr. Adam Knapp is the Joint University Microelectronics Program Manager, Jump Manager, at the Semiconductor Research Corporation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care. And and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw uh, send in my information, and lo and behold, I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out. 
come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he he, he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy, and you should you should you know send your this child away don't don't you know and kind of forget about them get, turn them over to the stage or or wherever and and you know that you know just kind of watch, watch your hands of it um and 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 in in these cases the parents didn't do that thankfully um and but they've still faced enormous challenges you know and but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and uh, and and you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working in the Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, yeah, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded everyone yeah. is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age. It's, it's, uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or, uh, year old, uh, folks, uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the, founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to 
uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, it, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.